Well, praise the Lord. He deserves that praise, right? All glory and honor and praise goes to him this morning. And we honor him and love him for what he has done so much in our lives. So much in our lives. Think about what the Lord's done in your life. Think about who you would be without him. It is really unthinkable. And you know, at some point in our lives, someone told us about it. At some point, somebody said, you need to know about this good news. I want to talk this morning and this evening about two topics that probably cause us the most angst and produce the most hesitation of anything we're called to do as believers. These are the ones that are most out of our comfort zone. And we're going to end the series this morning and this evening. But my hope is that by the end of the day, that... Every one of us will not only be free or more free of being uncomfortable about each topic, but that we'll actually begin to see them as the incredible privilege that they are and that they will start to become a strength in our lives and in our ministry. So this morning and tonight, I hope you'll be back tonight for prayer meeting. I want to speak very, very practically. And I want to look at some of the simple reasons why we might feel uncertain or reluctant, and also some of the persuasive reasons why we can be confident. So let's take our Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. I don't know how many of you were singing along with the choir just then. The words are very straightforward and they're pretty easy to remember. And there are two times when we sang, Living He Loved Me, Dying He Saved Me, Say it with me if you know it, Buried He Carried My Sins Far Away. Rising he justified, freed me forever, one day he's coming back, glorious day. That's from an old hymn. How many know that old hymn, glorious day? Great old hymn. And I love that that song quotes that because it's got great theology. And what's interesting about what we just said together, those seven lines, is those seven lines are the complete gospel. Those seven lines are all you need to know and all I need to know, and all we need to say to be able to lead somebody to Christ. Think about that. That's how simple it is. We don't have to have a degree in theology. We don't have to go to seminary. Jesus said, you're my children. You're my witnesses. Go out and tell people. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified and freed me forever. And one day he's coming back. It's that simple. Now, all of us could say that, right? That wasn't that hard. We sang it. We've even put it to music so we can remember it. But I want you to realize this morning how, how non-complex that is. How, how much we can take those six or seven phrases and talk to somebody about the Lord. And yet, this is the area where we feel most inadequate. And we're most fearful about trying to explain the gospel to somebody else. We believe it's true. We, we trusted it with our lives. We, we are unwavering in our commitment to the Lord. But there are a few things in life that, that make us feel more insecure and squirrely than telling somebody else about it. And so much of the uncertainty and so much of the self-doubt comes primarily from not feeling prepared and, and from not being confident to introduce the subject into our conversation. Now, this morning is by no means a comprehensive study on how to share our faith. In fact, we're not even really going to talk about evangelism and witnessing. That's not the primary focus. 
What's important for us to understand is how Jesus himself was able to connect with so many people and how he was able to speak directly to their hearts and minds about their need for salvation. And then we need to understand that he has made us fully equipped to do the exact same thing. Now that's already intimidating to some of us, and, we, and we're feeling maybe a little bit of pressure in our throat, like, where is this headed, and what am I going to have to do? It, again, it's not that hard. Jesus never taught his disciples an evangelism course. He never said, here are the principles of evangelism, here's what you have to do, here's the order. Once their hearts were changed spiritually, he modeled it for them and sent them out with power. And except for one example in the Gospels, initially they were largely ineffective and powerless and lacking in confidence prior to Acts. But once Jesus went back to heaven and he sent power from the Holy Spirit, and they looked back and said, you know, this really is life-changing, this is transformative, our lives are not what they used to be, and they looked back at the way Jesus administered to people, all of a sudden they had power and boldness and confidence that they had never had before. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at the disciples in Acts, and I crave that. I crave what the disciples had. I crave what the church had. I crave their confidence and their unwavering commitment and their devotion and their boldness. How many of us would like that in our lives? I mean, just, just that that would be true of us. It's a challenge to most, if not all of us, but if we love the Lord, we do have a desire to be strong, and we have a desire to be confident in this area. And there are two things, really, that should compel us to go beyond simply desiring it and hoping for it and wishing that someday it would happen to the point that we actually ask the Lord to produce this in our lives, and then we begin to prepare ourselves to be servants in this way. The two things are this. First of all, the Lord has given us a tremendous opportunity in this city and this region to be a church that stands boldly for the Lord. And along with other churches that love the Lord and preach the gospel and proclaim it, we want to be right in the center of the work that God wants to do to transform this area spiritually. Now, that task is not just about Harbor Rock Tabernacle. It's not just about growing numbers. It's about the ministry of the gospel. It's about the body laboring together, as the New Testament says, to fulfill God's commission. I'd love to have a 1,000 people on Sunday morning. I'd love to have this place be bursting at the seams. And maybe the Lord will bless us that way someday. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is to see people put their trust in Christ. The end goal is to see spiritual awakening and growth and maturity hit this area of the country that so desperately needs it. And that being said, the second impetus that we have is, is just about the simplicity of the numbers, about the potential of the impact that we can have as, church, as a church. You know I don't talk about numbers a lot. But I put this statistic out a few weeks back that our church averages about 520 visitors a year, which is an overwhelming number because those are not people we're having to go out and reach. Those are people that are coming to us, which is why we want to do a wonderful job of greeting them and integrating them and ministering to them and praying for them and helping them to be part of this church. And again, if you're a visitor this morning, we're glad you're here. We mean that very sincerely. We would love for you to have this be a place where you can worship where you can serve the Lord. 
But then the Lord put another statistic on my heart this weekend. And I told the prayer band about it at, their, at our meeting yesterday. And this number blows me away. That if every single person in this church, kids included, invited one person a, wor- a, a week to church, in one year, we would have invited 10,000 people to this church. If every single person just invited one, we would have invited 10,000 people. We can start by just inviting somebody to Good Friday or to Easter or whatever the case may be, or just a regular Sunday morning. And then imagine if not just inviting them to church, imagine if we started to talk to one person a week about the Lord. How much could we touch the lives in this city? In one year, we would touch a tenth of the population of the city with the gospel. Just by talking to one person. So the task before us is wonderful. The point of giving you that number is to show the impact that, that we can have, just as a little church, that we can have upon people's lives just by getting out of our comfort zone a little bit and talking to people about what we know and believe. So how do we get confident? Because that's really the issue. How do we become confident in this calling? And how do we not only become confident, how do we become strong in it? Well, let's look at the text here in Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to look at some of the ways that Jesus did it. Start in verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are the first four disciples that Jesus calls. And it's important to see how he called them, and it's important to see how they responded. Not just here, but all throughout their lives. Jesus appeals to them using a metaphor that they know, they're fishermen. So he says to them, stop fishing for fish. I will teach you to fish for men. I want you to notice that he transfers their thinking from material focus, these slimy fish and their nets which are broken, and the boat and their responsibilities, how he transfers their thinking from that to have a greater awareness of their need to draw people to Christ draw people to the Lord, to call people to faith in Jesus, how he transfers their thinking to that instead of being solely preoccupied to what they have to do. And this is a very key spiritual principle because we have to ask ourselves, what is our spiritual focus and how do we respond? I'm struck as you look at the passage, you see twice after he calls them, the word immediately is used. In other words, there's a complete and unwavering an instantaneous shift of priorities. Two of them even leave their dad in the boat and say, we got to go. It's not, well, let us, let us work this out. Boy, this is a big calling and we get that this is important. We probably should do this. We got some things to settle. We got some, some issues to resolve and we can't just leave poor old dad sitting here with the nets. I mean, they've got to be tied. So Jesus, that's wonderful. Give us a couple weeks. It's, it, it's not, coincidence that the Holy Spirit twice uses the word immediately. And yet, in terms of qualifications, these were not men that you would have chosen. These were not 
guys that you would have said, boy, if we got to start talking to people about the gospel and start having a ministry to people all throughout this region, let's get a bunch of fishermen. They'll be perfect. The fact that they were fishermen is actually a negative culturally. It was actually working against them because they were not highly respected by society. They did not have a strong social skill set for this calling. As fishermen, they were not interpersonal experts by any stretch. They were mostly loners. They went out in the middle of the night and, and went out to start catching the fish. They didn't really interact with people except for times when they would bring the catch in and they would bring it to market and sell it. But by reputation, fishermen were rough around the edges. They were uncouth, uncultured, uneducated because the, 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 uh, profession didn't need that. You didn't need a great strong education. You need to be a Bible scholar to be a fisherman. You were, you were just an average person. And your job was to supply the region with fish. That was it. Now, what we just described, uncouth, uncultured, not respected, not educated, doesn't describe any of us. Every person in this room has got ability. Every person in this room has got gifts. We've got interpersonal skills, even though you may be shy, even though you may be insecure. You've got interpersonal skills. I've talked to most, if not all of you. Every person in this room can carry on a conversation. And we're not looked down on culture by who we are or what we do or what our job is. And that makes Jesus' choice of these four men even more encouraging to us as we move to overcome our discomfort. Because these men, Andrew, James, Peter, and John, became really the most influential disciples that Jesus had. Not only among the twelve, but in the days of the early church. Peter, James, and John, they're the big three. They're the ones that are always there. They're the ones that Jesus is taking off to the mountain when he transfigures himself. They're the ones that are there at the end. They're the most reliable, the most faithful, the ones who are in the center of everything that happened. And Andrew, if we research him, we find out that he was actually one of the disciples that was closer to Jesus than the rest. But in terms of ability, in terms of confidence, in terms of skills to be fishers of men, as of Matthew chapter 4, they offer almost nothing. And we can't find an instance in the Gospels where they attended a course or where Jesus took them off on a personal retreat and said, you know, guys, I really need to help you. You need to learn exactly how to talk to people and, and let's talk about some of the strategies where you can go up and, and initiate conversation and how you can kind of turn the conversation to something spiritual or here are some of the intricacies of the gospel I need to kind of explain to you so you'll be fully prepared or, or here's how you can share your faith more effectively. Learning those things is very helpful. If we can take a class on that, then let's take it. But the fact is, their effectiveness was less about their skill and more about their commitment to the Lord and being willing to serve Him in any way that He wanted. And I found a very strange and unexpected example of this principle yesterday in an article of all things about the Chicago Blackhawks. Now, the Blackhawks started the season, and this has a point, so stay with me. The Blackhawks have started the season setting an all-time record of not losing in regulation in their first 17 games. I don't think anybody in the National Hockey League would say that they're the most talented team. They have three or four really strong players, but they aren't deep, and their goalies are pretty shaky, which causes us fans to be nervous every night. But this year... 
They've been winning. And they've shown a confidence on the ice that is undeniable. Now, I'm a huge Blackhawks fan, and I was reading this article about them that was trying to explain why they've been successful. And Here's the bottom line. The writer was talking about the team, and the one line that stood out to me applies to our study. He said, this team has gotten this far by committing to will over skill. And I said, that's this passage. What a great line for us. Because the secret to outreach to those who don't know Christ and who have fallen back and are in need of a spiritual uh, fisherman is that we are willing, not that we have great skills, not that we have every answer, not, not, not that we know everything and can solve every problem. The Lord wants us to be willing to reach out to others, willing to talk to them about our faith, and willing to tell them about the hope that is in Jesus Christ that is only in Jesus Christ. And when we are willing, he will provide the opportunities and he will give us the words when we don't know what to say. But he wants to know if we're willing. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified, freed me forever. One day he's coming back. That's the whole gospel. And we all just said it. And Jesus says, are you willing? Are you willing to tell people about that? And he gives us a very easy and powerful example of what it looks like to be fishers of men. He, he doesn't just say do it and then not give us an example. In fact, one of the most powerful examples is in John chapter 4. So let's turn there for the rest of our study and spend a couple minutes looking at how he reaches out to people here. How he talks to people about what he had come to do. About the gospel. This is a really Long passage, John chapter 4. We're not going to read it all. It's familiar to us. So we just want to pick some parts out and summarize what's going on and draw some principles out of it, and then we'll say good morning. As chapter 4 opens, you can kind of look at the background. He talks to Nicodemus in chapter 3. John the Baptist is, uh, is murdered in John, the end of John chapter 3. And then we see John chapter 4. Jesus is getting heat from the Pharisees. It's early in his ministry, but already they're after him. And he's walking from Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, northeast on the map, up to Galilee. To get to Galilee, the Jews would often cross the Jordan River down in Jericho, walk up the east side of the Jordan, cross back over at Galilee, so they wouldn't have to walk through Samaria. But Jesus doesn't do that. He walks straight through Samaria, and in a rare occasion, the disciples aren't with him. We don't know where they are. They come back at the end of the story. But for some reason, Jesus is alone, and he's in Samaria. And he stops in a town called Sychar. And he goes and sits by a well, and a woman, a Samaritan woman, comes to draw water. And I want you to see what he does here. Look at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, the first action, we're going to have four actions of outreach that Jesus shows us. The first action of outreach was that Jesus initiated conversation with people rather than waiting for them to ask. 
Jesus initiated conversation with people rather than waiting for them to ask. Now, it's no coincidence, and actually it's very instructive, that here he's talking to a Samaritan woman because that broke just about every social custom that existed at the time. First of all, he's speaking to a woman. Second of all, he's speaking to a stranger. Third, he's speaking to a Samaritan, which the text tells us was a group that the Jews hated. Fourth, he asks her for a favor, which she does not have to do. And fifth, by asking her to get him water, it would have made him ceremonially unclean if he used the cup or jar that she had given to him. So that, so every social convention, every norm, every expectation of how you should act, Jesus is challenging right now. This is socially unthinkable at worst, and it is awkward at best. But I have to believe, while her salvation is the point of the passage, and we'll look at that in just a minute, that the circumstances and issues surrounding this are very, very intentional. And they're not for her benefit, they're for our benefit. The Lord is showing us here how to have an outreach mindset and how to act on it. Jesus goes against everything that is normal to talk to her, but that's exactly the point. He shows us that a conversation can be started with anybody. He shows us that there are no real barriers to who we talk to and that often if we will just initiate conversation and we'll just ask some questions, we will be able to have a meaningful discussion with people and often that will become a spiritual conversation. Listen, people like to talk about themselves, right? People like to tell you what they're about and what they're thinking and what's interesting to them. That's what social networks have become all about. It's an explosion because people want to talk about themselves. Why are people on Twitter because they want to talk about themselves? They're not talking about you. They're talking about themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just need to understand the lay of the land. That if we will ask people questions, they will tell us what they have to say. So, so we think, well, that's not that hard. I can ask people questions. So why is this such an obstacle? I think there are several reasons. One is that we don't want to be intrusive into people's lives. This is a big one for me. I struggle with this one. That, that I don't want to feel like I'm invading people's space. That I'm, that I'm imposing on their time. And yet, here's the deal. People are hungry for relationships. And they're hungry for truth. So we need to see this as less of an intrusion and more of addressing the need that they have in their lives. So we need to get past, well, I don't, I don't want to intrude on somebody's lives. They want us to intrude. They want truth. They want answers. People want to know what is happening. Second, if we initiate conversation... Our fear is that that conversation might become deep. And if that conversation becomes deep, we might have to talk about the Lord. And if we have to talk about the Lord, we're very insecure and uncertain about that. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the initial thought here is that if the conversation goes that far, it's telling you that the person has a spiritual void, that the Lord is opening up a door of opportunity and saying, you have the opportunity to say, living, he loved me, dying, he saved. This person is telling you, I need answers. I need truth. And if the conversation goes deep, go with it. The third obstacle is that we're thinking too much about our own insecurity rather than seeing the desperate need of people to know the truth. 
there is a point, and we're all shy, we're all insecure, but there's a point where we have to move beyond ourselves. And we have to start the conversation. And hopefully in the days ahead, we're going to give you resources to help you with this. Handout cards and outreach events and service projects and ways to talk to people. Because we need to increase our responsibility in this. Anything we can do to meet people and build relationships for the sake of the gospel. Because sometimes it's just as simple as reaching out and starting a conversation. That's what Jesus does with the woman. Give me some water to drink. He he initiates the conversation. Second, would you see from the passage that he talked to people about what interested them? This is one of the easier ways to talk to somebody about their life. What interests you? What do you care about? That gives us an insight into who they are. And then we can turn that to spiritual subjects. Not not at a false pretense, not at a fake interest. Well, tell me what interests you, but, but I'm ready to take you right to the gospel. That's not what this is talking about. This is taking a sincere interest in people's lives and getting to know them and finding out what they care about, what makes them tick, what they're hurting over, what they're joyful over, who they are, so we can build a relationship with them. Because once we build a relationship with them, we can start to minister to them. And we can start to share the good news with them. I think it's it's hard because sometimes we associate sharing the gospel as that instantaneous, well, let me tell you, are you going to heaven today? And it's like, whoa! That's a little strong. If you die today, where are you going to be? Come on, answer. Cleveland. It doesn't have to be that fast. It can be. There are times where the Lord opens that door. But sometimes we just have to build that relationship, get to know the person. And that investment into people's lives is easier and more uh, more effective when we find out what they're thinking. Look back at verses 10 to 15. If you knew the gift of God, Jesus said, you'd say, give me a drink and you would know who asked you and you would want living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well's deep. She still doesn't get it. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father, Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. For the Samaritan woman, the subject is very straightforward. Jesus says, I know your routine. I know every day you have to come here. Every day you have this constant need to come and get this water. So he uses an everyday example to teach a spiritual principle. He says, the water you have here, you're going to have to come back tomorrow because you're going to get thirsty again. But let me talk to you about something that brings eternal spiritual fulfillment. Metaphorical water that that never makes you thirst again, that satiates the, the hunger in your life and the thirst in your life for truth and for answers and for meaning and for purpose because your life can't just be about coming to get water every day and drinking it. And saying, oh, that's so wonderful. And tomorrow you do the same thing again. Doesn't the routine bug you sometimes? When you wake up, brush teeth, put in context, shower, shave, get dressed, go to work, come home, eat dinner, help the homework, watch a little TV, go to bed. Tomorrow, guess what it's going to be? Wake up, brush teeth, contacts, shower, shave, get dressed. 
the routine becomes monotony. And yet, we're so preoccupied with the routine. And we try to break out of the routine. And we take a vacation. And we're like, yeah, I'm out of the routine for seven days. And now I'm back to the routine. It's like drinking water. I keep drinking water this morning. And my throat's still dry. Because that song's hard. And I already lost my voice once this week. And I feel it going again. You say, stop talking. I will in a minute. But I keep drinking water. And you know what? Every time I drink water, I want more water. And my throat keeps saying, give me more water because it's not satisfied. And yet Jesus says, I got an answer for you that will satisfy you forever. And she says, well, well, you don't have a cup. How are you going to draw the water? He goes, you're missing the point. The point is not this. The point is this. What's in your heart? And I think we live in a time with the diminishing of wealth and the diminishing of security and the diminishing of confidence in life. And that gives us an opportunity like we have never had before to do exactly what Jesus calls us to do, to draw the contrast between the material and the eternal, to say what we're striving after means nothing. And rarely in a time in our lifetime have we had this moment where people are genuinely looking for answers because they don't have any. And that leads to the third thought, quickly. Jesus' outreach was effective because he knew the condition of man. He knew the condition of man. There is a spiritual problem that exists in every person who lives. If there's one thing that keeps hitting me out of this Revelation study is that our hearts have been awakened that the end really is coming and that man's heart is so hardened that even in the midst of all the chaos, people will still defy and curse God and refuse to repent. And increasingly, that's the playing field that we're operating on. So it's imperative that we're not only fully aware of it, it's imperative that we are broken by it. It has been heartbreaking to see some of you come to tears, literally, sobbing, thinking about family members and about friends who are unsaved and resistant to the gospel. And yet it shouldn't just be you. It should be all of us. We should look around and say the world is lost and it's without hope and it needs answers that we would never become emotionally impervious to what's going on. Never spiritually indifferent like, well, it serves them right there to find God. No, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants everybody to be saved, and that's our job. And that should cause us to come to two decisions. First of all, we're going to get completely prepared for our responsibility to go into the world and speak the gospel. We need to prepare ourselves with the word of God. It needs to be a mix of complete abandonment to be equipped and trained to serve and a fresh commitment to know his word so we'll be servants who are never caught unprepared. Now that's a challenge. And we as a church need to do a good job of discipling and training and preparing. But there's a second aspect to it that goes beyond training. And that is that we need to be completely sensitive and yielded to the Holy Spirit. So when we don't know what to say and we're tongue-tied and we've prepared but we're caught, that the Spirit says, I got this. I got this. 
I see that you're willing. I see that your heart is broken for that person. I see that you want them so badly to know Jesus Christ. You know what? I'll take over now. I'll give you the words to say. And I'll give you the strength and courage to do the second decision. The second decision is to be completely unashamed to stand for him. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you in heaven. The opposite of true is true. If you're not ashamed of me, I will not be ashamed of you. I'll claim you as my own. Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel, for it's the power of God to save anyone who believes. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, I, here's, here's the conclusion I've come to. Increasingly, we are going to be the only ones that are speaking the word of God. Culture has abandoned that responsibility. Many churches have abandoned that responsibility. Many Christians are timid to do it. So there needs to be a remnant. There needs to be a group of people that says, you know what? We're going to declare the word of God. Even if everybody else has absconded the responsibility, we are going to be the ones that stand for the Lord and trust for the Lord and talk about the Lord and tell people about the gospel. We're going to be the ones. And if we're the remnant, so be it. Fourth, look at how Jesus modeled being unhesitant to get to the bottom line spiritually. Jesus gets to the ask, so to speak. He gets down to the real life issue that this woman had. Not that she had to draw water each day, but that her life had a spiritual and a relational emptiness that she had tried to fill with five different husbands. And now she was working on number six. Now, it hit me. Well, okay, that was easy for Jesus. He's omniscient. He knows. He doesn't have to be told this lady's had five husbands. He knows what's going on in her life. And besides, he's God. He, he, he is the word. Of course, he can speak truth to her. Paul, it's a great example, but it's Jesus. Well, a couple responses to that. The first one is that most of the people we talk to, we know what's going on in their lives. Rarely do we come across a stranger that we initiate conversation with. Most of the people that we're broken about this morning are people that we know well. We don't have to guess what's going on in their lives. We have good insight into it. But sometimes we feel, well, that's a little sensitive and, and they might be ticked off if we go there. We have to weigh that discomfort and that risk against the spiritual, eternal destiny that we have. And we have to say to the Lord, Lord, would you please show me the right time to initiate, the right time to ask the tough question. And then we say, well, Jesus is the word. Well, in your hands is the word. In your hands is the complete word. Jesus says, we're not going to add or subtract anything to it. This is complete. And you need to be confident that it is the truth. Never waver, church, in your confidence that what you hold in your hand is the truth of God. Never waver that you are fully equipped to do the job because we have the Holy Spirit. Listen, every time I try to do a home repair, I can't even say the word. That's how unskilled I am. I feel completely insecure. Rewire a lamp. I might die, but I'll try. Fix an air conditioner. Not a clue. Now, that's just not a skill I have. And it's 
not experience that I have. And honestly, I don't want to destroy my house. But if I have got clear instructions, or I've got someone skilled working alongside me, or both, I have confidence. Same principle applies to us. If we study well, and we ask the Spirit to guide us, we will never fail. If you use the Word of God and you talk to people about the hope that's in us, and you know it, it's in your heart, and we need to study it better, and we need to learn it so we can tell people this is the hope of the gospel. I know those six phrases, and now I'm going to find verses that support those six phrases, and I'm going to commit those to memory so when somebody talks to me, I can tell them the whole gospel in six phrases with supporting passages. And then I'm going to learn more, and I'm going to develop that so I can really feel confident. And the times when I don't feel confident, Lord, you're going to help me, every step of the way and you're going to give me the words and you're going to do the paraclete, you're going to come right alongside me and you're going to assist me. And I will be confident. And I'll be confident that the gospel can change lives. And that the Holy Spirit will bring insight and conviction and calling to people, to faith, when we share the gospel How many people know this morning that the gospel changes lives? Your own life. Your living evidence that the gospel transforms lives. We know it's true. We've seen it in our own lives. We've experienced it. Our lives will never be the same. For eternity, my life will never be the same. You know why? Because someone told me about Jesus Christ. Someone told me about the gospel. They took an interest in me. And you know what? There are people out there that are waiting for us to do the same thing. The fields are white and the laborers are few. And the Lord of the harvest is waiting for you and me to tell them. Let's close our eyes. I don't know if the Lord specifically spoke to you this morning. Maybe this message was for you and maybe it made you unbelievably uncomfortable. Maybe it's challenged you in a lot of areas. I pray that it has. I know it's challenged me. There's not one of us that isn't deficient in this area and I don't say that to produce guilt. I say that because we all have room for growth. There are steps we can take and there are steps the Lord can take. And if we're really sincere about being people and a church that talks about the Lord and stands for the Lord and shares the gospel, then we need to ask the Lord to do a fresh work in our lives and to begin to change and challenge the things that are holding us back from that. I don't know what it is for you this morning. I know what it is for me. So I pray just in this minute that we have to be before the Lord that you would talk to him you would confess to him and you would ask him to do a new work in your life
Father, you know our hearts and you know if we are sincere. You know if it is our genuine desire to be people that would stand more boldly for you and speak more boldly for you because the need is so incredibly great. Father, we ask you to do this work in our lives to help us. This is an area that is so challenging for us. It shouldn't be, Lord, but it is. And you knew that. That's why you gave us extra power. That's why you gave us your spirit to help us. Lord, I pray this week that you give each one of us one person that we can have a conversation with that that moves to a spiritual conversation. And Lord, that you'd give us confidence in those six phrases that we all said together that form the essence of the gospel, that we can share that with somebody. And even if they reject it to our face, Lord, we've told them. We've told them the good news. Because we've seen how it transforms our lives. And Lord, our greatest desire should one should be to want to see other lives transformed in exactly the same way. So Lord, work in and through us, we pray. Give us confidence and boldness and lack of hesitation and lack of insecurity. Lord, that you would just give us strength this week to accomplish what we need to accomplish and what you've called us to with this great calling. I pray that for myself, Lord. I pray that for each person here that loves you. And Lord, we will thank you and give you praise. And Lord, we'll have stories next week of how you have worked in a powerful way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.